This is my mom. She's a really good doctor. Hi, I'm Dr. Lex, but I'm also mom to Isabella, Lance, and Lucia. Our mom takes care of our family, our friends, and her patients. On this podcast, our mom is going to be talking to her doctor friends and teaching you how to keep your family safe and healthy. Okay, mom. Ready for the show? Let's do it. Welcome to Family Health with Dr. Lex. Today's episode is all about women's mental health, emotional regulation, and positive parenting with a new friend from our neighbor to the north, Dr. Carly Crew. She is a Canadian-trained and certified family physician and psychotherapist, but she's also a modern-day nomad traveling all over North America in her RV with her husband, twin daughters, and two rescue dogs. Dr. Crew is the CEO and owner of Unoya Medical Clinic, which is an innovative virtual clinic that provides comprehensive treatment of mental health disorders for women by an extraordinary team of female family doctors. Dr. Crew also hosts the five-star rated Mind Over Motherhood podcast, where she shares practical and down-to-earth insights on all things mindset, motherhood, and mental health. Dr. Crew was an awesome guest, and I so enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do too. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my friend, Dr. Carly Crew, to the show. Dr. Carly Crew is here with me, coming to us live from Nova Scotia, Canada, which is just where you happen to be these days. How long are you there? Uh, yeah, actually we leave tomorrow, but we've been here. Yeah. We've been here for eight weeks. So we came at the beginning of September. Okay. So first yeah. of all, Dr. Carly crew is a Canadian. Yes. Family, fa- family medicine trained physician. Yes. Psychotherapist mm-hmm. um, who is an expert and has developed a practice that focuses on mostly women's mental health and positive parenting, but you yes. live the life of a nomad. You live in an RV with your hubby and kids and dogs. And I am so supremely envious of that life because I would totally, that would totally be me if I were the sole decision maker. So how yeah. on earth, first of all, do you do what you do and how do you do it while living in an RV and <laughs> traveling all over Canada with your family? I would yeah, love to know. Uh, lots, lots of, uh, lots of time to myself. No. Um, but no, I, I, we've kind of come down this path of being in an RV and being kind of what we'd call semi-nomadic, I guess, with no real home stamp place, like, you know, a place that we like call home. Um, we've been doing that for like just basically this year, but it's been in the works for about three years. So about three years ago, my husband and I, we kind of came to this point in our life. We bought uh, this beautiful dream house that we thought we, always wanted this big chef's kitchen, like all these things. And, and it had theater in the basement and all this stuff. And, and like, we lived in it. We loved it. Like I still, to this day, really love that house, but we just found ourselves realizing that while we were living in a dream house is that all of a sudden it wasn't our dream. Like we realized, Hey, this isn't actually what we wanted to do, but we thought it was what we wanted to do. And so we did all the steps, right? Like graduate from university and get married and have kids and buy a house and, you know, like the script that everybody follows. And then once we got there, we were kind of like, wait a minute, like we bought a house, but really like, we're not doing any of the things that we want to do, which was like travel. And when we thought we, when we planned to have our kids, we always said, we want to travel with them. And we were like, well, well, we're not traveling. All we're doing is like spending our weekends, like doing yard work and putting up like Christmas decorations. Like this is stuff about houses that I like hate. Right. So we started to kind of think about how could we get out of 
a house basically and being like in one place. And, um, and we kind of went, well, what if we just like downsize, right? Maybe it's the size of the house that's the problem. We're like, no, nah, that doesn't really work because we're still in one place. And now what if we just did like a tiny home? Oh, those aren't terribly mobile either. Like we kind of have to park it somewhere and we're not really sure where. Well, what if we, and then it came up to, what if we got an RV? And then oh we started gosh. diving into RV life. So actually this is our second rig. So we actually had a fifth wheel last summer. We bought a big, beautiful fifth wheel, like 38, actually it ended up being 42 feet. And we renovated it like from tip to tail, um, which was a labor of love. And, um, and it turned out really beautiful. And then we towed it up to the Northwest Territories last summer, but we learned really quick that like a tow behind trailer just doesn't work for our family and our lifestyle. So now we are in a 32 foot motorhome, which is like my motorhome of my dreams. It's not fancy by any means. It's like not a, you know, luxury RV or anything, but it's perfect for our family. It's nice and compact. It has everything we need. And yeah, so we've been traveling across the country. So we started up in Dawson City, like way over up north near Alaska uh, earlier this summer. And then over August, we came literally coast to coast across Canada and dipped our toes in both oceans within a month. And um, and it's just been a real adventure. So now we're in the East Coast and we're going to be here till tomorrow. And then next week, we actually go to Mexico for six months. Oh my gosh. How do you navigate working and delivering care to so many women who clearly need your help and benefit from all of the experience and expertise and wisdom and training that you've acquired. How do you work and do deliver the care that you deliver while living on the road? Thank you pandemic, because I've been doing mental health work for like about probably my kids are going to be five. And it was shortly after they were born that I really started doing a lot of work with women's mental health. And, um, and, and I've been, I've been doing that in my family practice back in Alberta, where I was practicing for five years and seeing a lot of women on consult and doing all that. And then when we decided we were going to be more nomadic, we, I was like, well, how do I bring my patients with me? Like, I I can't leave them behind. I just like really develop like wonderful relationships with these women. Yeah. And, um, and so like a lightning bolt last fall, it kind of struck me like, what if we just did a virtual like mental health clinic? Right. And, and I kind of melded over and then like, it it took me about six, eight weeks, get everything set up. And I opened my doors January 4th, my virtual doors, January 4th. And within about four days, I had like 70 women on my waiting list. And I was like, holy smokes, like this was supposed to be something I was doing kind of part-time yeah. because while I move all over the country, I also do rural locums, right? So as a rural GP, I do like eMERGE medicine and family practice and inpatient okay. care. So, so yeah, I do all of it remotely and, um, and admittedly when I'm on locum, like my hours are fewer, but since the clinic opened and the demand was so high, um, my genius husband said, Hey, what if you asked if there's anybody else who wants to do this kind of work with you? And I asked a good girlfriend, she said, absolutely. Yes. Who is also a family doc. And so from January, pardon me from March, cause I didn't have somebody join me so much, but March until October, we're now a team of 12. Wow. So it's like, well, docs. yeah, it's like exploded. Yeah. Now, are you all able to see patients anywhere in the world or are you confined only to Canadian patients? Yeah. So similar to the States where like, I think you guys are licensed to state specific States and you have yeah. to have a license specific state. We can see within Alberta where most of us are licensed in Alberta, actually all of us are licensed in Alberta. So we can see Alberta based patients and it's covered by the Alberta healthcare, which is amazing. Right. So a big part of my clinic creation was about breaking down barriers that women had to accessing mental health services. And one of them is bring it to them in their home because often like new moms or depressed women or people with anxiety don't really want to leave their house right, right all the time, or it's not practical. And that was my story. It wasn't practical. I had twins in tow and I had like, you know, 
the severe postpartum anxiety, like the last thing I could do was drive an hour to see a therapist. Like that was just not going to happen. So bring it to them in their home and then eliminate as many costs as possible. Right. And so our care in, in the Alberta province is completely covered by the Alberta healthcare. So they're public healthcare. And then outside of Canada, we can see patients almost in every province of Canada, but it is unfortunately private pay. We just haven't been able to expand beyond Alberta yet, but there's lots of plans for it in the works. So yeah, it's been really incredible and it's like exploded. I think we're, we're serving about, I would say close to 300 women now, yeah. um, which is just like, just so amazing to me. And I'm just so proud of it because like indirectly, I'm able to help that many more women. Right. So, yeah. and I'm super duper passionate about women's mental health. I think it's, we have to support the kind of like the core of the family for the family to be healthy. Right. Like I really often see women as kind of like the mast of the sailboat, right. Like the mothers. And of course we have our incredibly supportive partners as well. Like I'm so lucky. My husband is incredibly involved. He's a stay at home parent. Like he supports me as well, but I'm really firm believer that we have to support kind of like the mast. Otherwise the boat's pretty tippy. Right. And so the mast needs to feel strong, right? Like the woman needs to feel strong. She needs to know what, how to work with her brain. She needs to know how to take care of herself. She needs to know how to set boundaries. She needs to know all these really important things because when she's well her family's well and her community's well and also so it goes on from there so there's so many other ways that women all over the world can learn from you and one of them is your podcast called mind over motherhood which focuses on women's health uh, in particular women's mental health and as it relates to all of the challenges surrounding motherhood and parenting yeah yeah and i would say it even expands like i honestly considered renaming the podcast this year because it's not specifically about motherhood all the time right often I'm just talking about women's mental health so I have lots of podcasts specifically around you know anxiety and anxiety management and how to know if you could use meds and and these sorts of things but we also dive into other things related to it like you know toxic relationships and narcissistic relationships and we've had you know I've had um people on who talk about like helping you feed your kids better, or, you know, people on who talk about helping you get your finances under control. Cause all of these things ultimately impact our mental health, right? The stresses that we have as women and mothers will impact our mental health. Yeah. So, so today I'm, I'm excited to talk to you because we haven't done much in terms of parenting episodes. And I love that your approach to positive parenting really does focus on the mass of that ship. And that is maternal and, and parental mental health. And so I'd love to start there and just kind of break down um, a little bit about how this all works, how a woman's a mother's a parent's mental health affects the family unit, especially when it comes to parenting and trying our best to raise healthy children when our own mental health may be struggling. So I want to start, I just want to ask you first and foremost, there's, there's like the, the, the stress and the day-to-day stressors, the kind of like little overwhelm, like I'm late for a meeting or I missed the parent teacher conference, or, um, you know, I lost my keys. There's these, the day-to-day stressors that make our lives more challenging. We talk a lot about mindset with respect to how you deal with stress and emotions in those kinds of situations. And then this pandemic has left us with mm-hmm. a lot of kind of catastrophic crisis situations, like issues concerning our safety, um, our food, our health, and our finances with respect to all of the above. And so I want to just to first ask, in this time of incredible stress and overwhelm, combining the day-to-day stuff and the big stuff, is there a difference in the way you approach that from a mindset perspective? I mean, I imagine that your mind, your approach to Um, your mindset and overcoming small day-to-day stressors 
takes on a very different approach than dealing with crises and extremely stressful, catastrophic, life-changing type events. So can you talk to me a little bit about identifying how maybe we can differentiate between those? Because a lot of us are dealing with both and a lot more of us lately are dealing with some of the more crisis type stressors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good question. Lots of things we can digest in there for sure. Um, I think, so I have a couple kind of principles that I always follow when it comes to thinking about how our brains are functioning in certain situations. I'm very kind of like not neuroscience based in a, in a boring way, but I really like to explain in, you know, in, in kind of like easy terms, what's happening in your brain when things are going on so that you can understand why you're reacting or why your emotions are such that they are. So like, let's put ourselves pre-pandemic and you're just like dealing with your day-to-day, right? Like there are fewer things, if we contrast it to now, there were fewer things then that were like true threats to our safety, right? So of course these like little stressors, they build up and they irritate us. And then we take a couple of days and maybe we can like chill out, go take a mm-hmm. bath, do some self-care stuff, meditate, right. but we can come back down to baseline right? And our brain on the whole, we're able to operate in that like super smart executive functioning frontal brain most of the time. Mm -hmm. Right. And then now we look at the pandemic and the pandemic has, like you said, threatened our literal safety and our bodily safety um, in a way that we've never experienced before as a population, right. Of this age, like of our generation. Um, And because of that, not only is it threatening us, but it's incredibly unpredictable, right. Mm -hmm. We, we get overburdened constantly with like, is it false news? Is it true news? Do we know what to trust? Who do we trust? What do we trust? So-and-so said this, so-and-so, right? So it's just, there's so much incredible uncertainty. And any of your listeners who listened probably to your previous episode on the biology of trauma would understand that anything that like signals a fear or sorry, a threat to our safety is going to activate our trauma response, right? Or activate our fight or flight response, right? And so when you're going about your day and you're basically operating in a fight or flight response, lots of things happen, right? So your brain, so the front part of your brain, the smart executive part of your brain has been living in the pandemic now for 18 months, right? Some of that part of your brain is like, nah, no big deal anymore, right? Like most of us have been like, okay, it's reasonably safe. I can probably sort it out. You know what I mean? Like we got the vaccines or we don't, and you know, we've made our decisions about things and things like all of the dust has somewhat settled around what the pandemic is and what the risks are. But the back of our brain, the amygdala does not care. It's still freaking out. Like the limbic system is freaking out. It's like, no, no, we're still under a lot of threat here. And it's constantly sending out stress signals, creating cortisol response and all the different stress signals to our body. And when we have an activated threat response or an activated fight or flight response, even if it's just this like low grade stress response, that's just kind of grumbling along, say for the last 18 months during a pandemic, Mm. that changes our ability to have clear executive functioning, to make decisions, to emotionally regulate ourselves, to remain patient, to do complex tasks, like negotiate with the toddler who doesn't want to negotiate with you, right? Like all those sorts of things. So the executive functioning gets turned off or gets turned down or becomes impaired right? Mm. So this leads us to not only be already kind of heightened in our responses to these catastrophic events, but it also leaves us unable to complex, to manage complex problems. Okay. Okay. So when it comes to why does this matter? Why do we care about this? Is that it looks at how are we going to manage this moving forward, right? Like when you said, what's your mindset? The mindset has to be like, wow. Okay. So now I understand that my brain has been living in basically eternal 
threat, eternal fight or flight for a long time. And some of my like smart thinking skills, right. I've had a lot of women come to me and be like, I can't concentrate worth a damn thing. My memory is no good anymore. Like what is happening? And I'm like, that is because your brain is just been under a constant threat response, right. For this long. And that's what they're talking about. The pandemic burnout, like the psychological burnout of the pandemic is because our limbic systems are basically still burning out. So so it, it, it changes how we look at ourselves because instead of thinking like, how do I mindset my way through this? I would shift the lens to say, how do I give myself so much compassion right now and focus on reminding my nervous system and my body that I'm safe, which I know you're all about probably talking about the nervous system. <laughs> um, right. And so it, it from, it, I haven't dove into the parenting perspective yet, but specifically like, that's the difference between like the day-to-day stressors when things are relatively normal, right. Versus the last 18 months when most of us are like in some sort of pandemic brain fog now, and we can't seem to see our way out of it. And that's not so much the problem is that when we then get after ourselves, that we're like not functioning properly, yes. right. Women are really good at that. We criticize, yes. we get after ourselves. What's wrong with me. Right. And so that's why I share that kind of insight about how your brain's probably responding to the pandemic. So so that you can understand why you might have impaired concentration, why your sleep might be broken, why you have difficulty regulating, why you're more irritable. Right. This has mm-hmm. been a, a, a traumatic event for so many people. Absolutely. When we talk about those day-to-day things, when we discuss kind of, like you said, resetting, you know, participating in self-care, taking a nap, yeah. going for a massage, going for a walk, doing deep breathing on a micro level, when the stressor, when the stressors are low level stressor or kind of stressors that we're used to we have built kind of a resilience. We've kind of started to get familiar with self-care, you know, and trying at least to announce what we need and participate in our own wellness with respect to end of the day burnout, end of the week burnout, maybe even like, you know, seasonal burnout or whatever, but this long protracted stressor that has been so catastrophic for so many people on so many levels, you know, internally, emotionally, individually with a family unit, with relationships with friends, colleagues, coworkers, you know, the shift in the way you interact with people going from, you know, looking at another person in the same room to on a screen with 30 people every day, all of the sensory input there. Mm-hmm. loss of loved ones, mm-hmm. um, changing relationships with loved ones. The, the, there's so many components to, and so many levels of trauma mm-hmm. built into this along exactly. with the isolation, the loneliness, the, you know, loss of jobs or change in status. So, I mean, yeah. it, it, it does seem like I can understand where you're coming from with respect to how that prolonged exposure to such a high and extreme level of stress can change the way you function. And because mm-hmm. we are hot on ourselves, you know, now we're like, okay, well, we're expected to be resilient. We kind of learn self-care and we learn resilience. Why am I not coming out of this yeah. as quickly or as effectively as I could come out of, you know, a grumpy day or, you know, yeah. PMS or, you know, exactly. getting some, some minor yeah. bad news. Exactly. Well, and like you said, a lot of those things that were our reset buttons before were taken away from us during the pandemic, right? right? Having coffee with a girlfriend, going out for a glass of wine, having friends over to visit socially, your kids going, being able to go out and have childcare outside of your home, Yes. right? You having a day of, you know, child-free time, if you're a stay-at-home parent or not, and you, your kids went to school, well, all of a sudden they weren't. So it was just this constant onslaught of additional demands and like the burden of the pandemic on women. I mean, I'm very biased, but the burden of the pandemic on women, I think was, was, 
astronomical compared to men because women were already balancing so many things before the pandemic. And now it's like, oh, let's just bring all your kids home. And now you can't work at your job and now you can't have childcare. And now you can't have people come to help clean your house or do any of your other, you know, outsourcing that you might've done to offload yourself. Right. So I often talk about the brain too, in terms of like, how many cognitive resources do you have? Mm -hmm. Right. And so like we often use, like you said, we're very, we can be very skillful if we're, if we're mindful, we can be skillful of, of checking in on how much cognitive resources do I still have from Mm -hmm. a day-to-day basis and what do I need to do to replenish them? Okay. Right. And so when we think about like what all those things we just mentioned, all those things that came from the pandemic, like how many resources you got left, man, like they're basically drain, drain, (laughs) drain, 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 drain. There's not a lot of opportunity to just be like, I hate that quote, fill your own cup thing, but there's really not the, there hasn't been really, really much of an opportunity to fill back up yet. And I think that some of us, like you said, who are hard on ourselves or who are a bit of perfectionists, we tend to think like, okay, so the pandemic, I've got this licked, like I should be bouncing back and be right right back at. Right. Right. And social media and like entertainment doesn't help. Right. right? Because then you see all these women, like she seems fine. They seem fine. They seem fine. They're not. Right. So like, you know, yeah. So if, if we're trying to navigate our own emotions in a very different environment than we did pre-pandemic, where we were kind of getting used to, you know, the empowerment of, of owning our emotions and regulating our emotions and, and setting boundaries. And we were starting to learn, we were starting to learn how to do that. I feel like, I feel like, um, there was a, a a strong movement towards self-care and towards, preventing burnout. And then this hit us. And I think that some people might not even, I know that there are days when I don't even realize how my own mental health is suffering because we're just kind of really used to this. Now, this is kind of like, we're accepting a new normal. And in the meantime, trying to get back to the old normal. So we may not even realize how significantly our mental health is compromised because we're so used to this now for so long. And we're so used to trying to bounce back and to trying to, you know, um, do our best and present our best self and regulate our own emotions. So what are some signs, what can we do to like, kind of check in with ourselves to kind of evaluate where we are with our own mental health, because maternal mental health and parental relationships or adult relationships in the presence of children obviously affects our children's health and our children's mental health. They're watching us deal with everything. They're watching how these stressors are affecting our personalities, uh, how they're affecting our stress response, how they're affecting our interpersonal relationships with our spouses or partners or other adults that we're dealing with. And so if we're not even aware of our own mental health needs in this extremely stressful time, how can we address them, improve them, and therefore be positive role models for our children in this very difficult time for them as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I think asking the question, how am I doing is a good place to start, right? Because like you said, we go through the day to day and if we're yeah. not even aware of it, then we can't do all those nice things that you just said. Like we can't regulate, we can't be aware of how our kids are impacted, none of that. So it also always starts with awareness, right? We have to be aware of like, okay, so how am I feeling? Mm-hmm. I'm a big advocate for like journaling or tracking your mood or something for a couple of weeks and seeing like, if I yeah. were to rate my mood from zero to 10 every single day for the next two weeks, like where am I landing here, right? Yeah. Or looking at 
things that like the things that I do for my enjoyment and, you know, that I find pleasure in or that are fun for me, do I still find those emotions doing those activities? Right. Or do have I experienced a loss of joy that things aren't really joyful, no matter what they are And they used to make me happy. So I don't know why this isn't fun anymore. Right. And of course, all these kind of like symptoms or experiences are going to not be in isolation, right? I wouldn't say like, oh, if you don't like knitting and you used to, you're probably depressed. Like, no, it's like taking a a big view of like everything that you've been experiencing and kind of taking the pieces of, okay, my mood is consistently lower than high, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's on average, do I feel down more than, more than positive or, you know, am I more irritable? I find, especially Mm -hmm. in women, irritability and anger, like, is so potent when we're not doing well. And that, in my opinion, is the sign of the resources are just like, we're completely tapped, right? We have nothing left, right? That's the only thing we have left is to be irritable because we just don't have anything left. So irritability and anger, it's often also not talked about because I feel like we're like told not, we're not supposed to be angry parents and like not to yell at your kids and all that sort of stuff, of course. But like, if you're finding yourself to just have like, like, like the quickest fuse, yeah, maybe we need to check in, right? Interrupted sleep, right? Struggling to fall asleep, stay asleep or waking up way earlier than usual. Right. A lot of rumination at night tends to be in my, in my, um, experience, either a really bad habit over many, many years, a brain habit, or it's because our stress response is activated. Right. And so if your stress response is activated, your mental health's not doing that great. Okay. Um, even like, you know, diet changes, not wanting to eat loss of appetite or eating more than you normally would some sort of like expression of emotional eating, maybe you've lost or gained weight and that's not normal for you when you've typically been quite stable. Right. So some of these could all be really good signs of "Mm, maybe we need to look at this a little bit closer. Right. And so then Right. Once we've identified that maybe we're not doing so well, the very first step to helping our children do well is to help ourselves do well, which is going without saying, right? Like we can't, we cannot help a child regulate if we cannot regulate. And I, I, I'm blanking on the name who wrote this quote, but it's like an unregulated, a dysregulated parent cannot regulate a regulated, a a dysregulated child. Wow. I butchered that quote, (laughs) but I think you get the point, right? A dysregulated parent cannot regulate a dysregulated child. Right. Right. And so, and our ability to regulate our emotions in those like hot button moments when you're like fuse is about to blow because your kid is like throwing all the dirt on the floor or something. Right. Like our ability to do that is very impacted. It's like, very impaired when we're not well. Right. So like if anybody's ever done, say like a morning routine, you hopped in the morning routine bandwagon from like the last, I love mornings. I love morning routine. So I'm not doing it. But like, have you ever had an amazing experience where you like get up and you like have this beautiful morning routine and you're just like a rock star all day because you like did your yoga and you meditated and you're you're calm and you're not like ripping anybody's head off. And it's just great. (laughs) Right. That's because you're regulated and you, your nervous system is regulated, right? But then you have a super exhausting day at work. You come home, the kids are fighting the mess, the dog, like, and then the kid drops its shoe and starts crying and you're like, ah, I can't handle it. You're dysregulated. So we have to learn to regulate ourselves first. And we have to get the support to do that by improving our mental health, right? Whether that be a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, whatever you could do, right? Um, Looking into whether it's like meds that you might need or just more exercise, you know, better sleep hygiene. There's a whole myriad of strategies obviously it's not a cookie yeah. cutter situation. So if but, I'm hearing you correctly, uh, we're looking for mood symptoms. 
how high or low is your mood? How good or bad is your mood? Energy levels, how high or low are your energy levels? How are your behavior patterns, your sleep habits, your exercise habits? How is your diet? Um, something that I was thinking of as you were speaking of is how much are you relying on um, vices? Like, are you mm-hmm. drinking too much? Are that. you yeah. utilizing other substances to maybe help yeah, uh, that's bring really that? Good one. You know, so, so some of those things may be ways for us to check in with ourselves to determine how we're doing, or maybe even just asking, like asking your spouse, your partner, you know, or other trusted friends or relatives, you know, how they perceive your handling this mm-hmm. situation. You know, if you're mm-hmm. someone who can deal with constructive criticism or actually wants the feedback, you know, getting an honest um, answer from a friend or, um, or a partner or friend or, you know, um, mm-hmm. relative might be helpful in just saying, yeah, you know, like my dad would never tell me if he thought I was being bitchy or if he thought I was dysregulated, yeah, yeah. you know, if I yeah. asked him, he'd be like, well, listen, since you asked, you know, I've noticed X, yeah. Y, and Z. Um, right. so that might be helpful if you have a, you know, an open relationship like that. When it comes to how much of our own stressors, uh, become evident to our children, you know, we want to kind of give them positive coping skills. We want to help them develop resilience and learn how to, you know, face adversity and overcome challenges. Um, how much of what we're going through is healthy to share with our children, you know, especially mm-hmm. with respect to big challenges, like what we're going through, like maybe losing a job or, you know, cause kids just want to feel safe, right? They just want to feel like they have what they need. Like they have you know, they're loved and that someone is there to support them, but they see us going through this. They see the world imploding around them. Um, what are, what are, what's a safe amount of information to share with them? Are there things that we shouldn't be sharing with them or are there ways that we can frame, you know, major issues like the pandemic or health issues in a way that, um, is a healthy and positive one for them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like this question. It's obviously going to be very age and child dependent and situation. Right. So if you have, uh, you know, a very mature five-year-old who emotionally could probably handle the fact that you've lost your job, right. Then, then I would say share what feels comfortable to you. But I think it's like you said, more important on how you frame these things. Right. Mm-hmm. So children do want to feel safe and children will feel safe in the setting of a parent who they feel has is responsible for the situation. Right. Okay. So where a child will often feel unsafe is if the parent is expressing like, you know, this is all happening and I don't know what to do. And it's just like this kind of, which is normal for all of us at some point. Right. Yeah. But that's the kind of, you know, where you just don't have, you're just maybe like emoting and venting. And there's a lot of like powerful emotions and loud voices, that sort of stuff's going to scare a child. However, if you were having a bad day and your kid sees you crying and then comes and asks, like, it's very healthy to say, you know, mommy's going through a really hard thing right now. And sometimes that happens to grownups, just like it happens to kids. Mm -hmm. But I want you to know, I really appreciate you asking. It's okay to go through hard things sometimes. And mommy's going to take care of this and explaining what it is in that safe way. Right. Like another way that I've heard it phrased, you know, um, one of my patients, her father-in-law, if I remember correctly, had had a heart attack and died. And she's like, Oh my God, how do I talk to my kid about this? And I said, well, like kids, like you said, need to know they're safe, right? They need things in simple age appropriate terms. And so I would explain to him, you know, grandpa's body was sick and it stopped working. Right. And we're all very sad about that. It's okay for you to be sad about that. It's normal to feel sad when we lose people. Mm-hmm. And, but you know what? You're going to be safe. You can't catch what grandpa had, right? Your body is healthy and you're always yeah. safe. 
with mom and dad. Right. So it's like always framing it in that really loving and safe way. Other things. So like we're traveling. Right. And so we've spoken to our children about like stranger safety because we're going to be in a foreign country. Right. And so I always say to them, you know what, when we're here, you can absolutely run around like here in Nova Scotia where it's, you know, like lovely. And we're in a little tiny town and, and it's not, you know, you can run all around, but when we go to Mexico, it's going to be really important that you hold onto mommy's hand because dangerous things could happen. You're always going to be safe with mommy and daddy. We're always going to keep you safe, but it's really important that you, right. So it's like, it's always framing it as like, yes, this exists. Yes. This is a problem, but this is not your responsibility as a child. I think we get into danger with our kids when we kind of overshare to the sense where they feel like they're all of a sudden the parent and they're obligated to fix this, especially with our really like conscientious, um, you know, somewhat anxious children. I see that a lot in my female, um, like adolescents when I've seen mm-hmm. kids, I used to have an adolescent mental too, right. Where they're yeah. very, or like the eldest child of a family is just very conscientious and they feel very, a lot of over responsibility. We do want to be cautious of that. I think that honestly, a lot of our generation, I'm assuming we're kind of similar in age. I think our generation grew up with a lot of sense of maybe over responsibility for things and people pleasing and taking care of others and all that, which has probably led to us why we struggle so much to take care of ourselves now and set healthy boundaries and all that sort of stuff. So I think it's important that we're always, you know, making it age appropriate and clear where the boundary of responsibility lies for the problem that we're going through. Right. And mommy's feeling stressed about this right now, but this is, Oh, mommy and daddy, I'll figure this out. This isn't your job to figure this out. Exactly. Yeah. I love it. I love that. It's just, um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about how they're witnessing us in an uncomfortable situation where Mm -hmm. we don't know what to do and we're afraid, you know, and all the signals and all the messages around them are, you have to, you know, put on your mask and you have to protect yourself and you have to protect everyone around you. You have to protect, you know, all of your friends. And, and that when they see us, you know, have difficulty navigating that situation, I've doubted my own capacity to be brave and confident in my behavior and in my explanation to them of what I have to do, what we have to do and what our responsibilities are without making them fearful, you know, because we are afraid. I'm afraid, you know, I'm afraid for my patients, for my family um, on so many levels. And they see that. And I think that they're totally understanding that, you know, my Mm -hmm. kids are 14, 11 and six and at different stages and different times, you know, they, they have expressed how, um, how, how, how afraid they are and how they don't want to be afraid. They want to be normal. They want, they don't want to see us afraid. They don't want to not be able to see their family members even, you know, um, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's, it's just been, it's been so challenging and it's just so interesting to hear how you suggest we frame those. I heard you say that we have to validate whatever it is that they're feeling and then, And then give them the reassurance that you are going to do, we are going to do our best to keep them safe and that they can partner with us and, Mm -hmm. you know, um, kind of follow the rules to help keep everyone safe, which is, I think, really powerful. Well, I think in the way I would frame it for you is, um, would you rather have your child and not your kids, but I'm talking about, you know, like, would you rather have a child grow up in a pandemic like this and never see you feel fear and learn how to navigate it from you? right? Mm-hmm. Like, is it more damaging for a child to like, for you to pretend a parent to pretend like it's fine. It's totally fine. Nothing to worry about. Meanwhile, they're terrified. Now right. they feel like their response is inaccurate and they start to not trust themselves. Right. So yes. we want our children to trust their emotional reactions. And so for them to see you experience fear, um, you know, confusion, uncertainty, and watch you navigate that show, like basically kids are watching us to learn how to be human. Yeah. Right. 
So, and what you're experiencing is human. And so how you learn to navigate that, right. And there's no perfect way, right. There's no perfect way, but they need to see that. So they're like, okay, so this is what fear looks like. And this is what an adult of my species does. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Now I know that it's okay to feel fear. Now I know that it's normal to feel fear in this situation and that fear is something we can learn with, walk with, learn to overcome. Right. I think as a whole, like this is a big statement, but I think on the whole, like humans just have a really low tolerance for distressing emotions of any sort. Mm -hmm. And so it's everyone's gut reaction immediately when they feel an emotion to take it away. And that's what we don't want our kids to have. Right. Mm -hmm. So like you said, your children don't want to feel fear. Well, that's okay. That's normal for them to not want to feel that. But our job is not to take their fear away. Our job is to help them learn how to manage their fear, learn how to walk with the fear, learn how to walk with distress, learn how to navigate anger, right? Rather than like, it's okay. There's nothing to worry about. Mommy's got it handled. Nobody's afraid here, <laughs> like, right? Like we yes. almost cripple our kids in a way by not giving them the tools of letting us walk through these emotions. Yes. Oh my gosh. Right? Yeah. I, I never, I, I feel like I, knew that, but I never heard it framed in that way. And I think that that's really powerful and really important. I, I want to talk so much about p- positive parenting, but something that I was think w- was thinking about when you were speaking was how confusing it must be for our kids to encounter various adults in their lives who have various approaches. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to parent positive parenting, and we're going to, I want, I want you to explain kind of what positive parenting is kind of what the principles are and, um, and how it differs from maybe like traditional parenting or attachment parenting. But, but before you do that, I just, I just wanted to see if you had any insight on if I decide I wanted to pause parent my child with a positive parenting approach. And there are multiple adults in my child's life, like a teacher or relatives or babysitters, grandparents, um, you know, older siblings, maybe who are participating and raising a younger child. How, what, what, what is a, what is a strategy or, 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 um, approach that we could use in kind of informing or announcing or requesting that the other adults participate in our approach? Is that inappropriate to ask another adult to, um, approach your child in a way that you prefer, or is it better to kind of go back and say to your child, well, that the way that adult approached it is not necessarily the way I would approach it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Really uh, broad question again, but really good question. I think it really <laughs> depends on who you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, of course you're, you know, you're not going to walk into like, you know, a, a, another person's house and who has children and tell them to parent your child differently than they're going to parent their own, right? Like that's not our, that's not our grass to cut. Um, I think we sometimes <laughs> under tell, um, we sometimes un, not undersell, but I guess underestimate the impact of the early years and where that a lot of the foundational kind of emotional regulation and behavior management and what is discipline and what is education and all those sorts of things. Those yeah. things are really, really built in before our kids are exposed a lot to other caregivers sometimes. Right. So like, yeah. of course, they go to daycare and thankfully in daycares, if you're lucky, you can maybe like try out a couple and find something that aligns with your strategy. Right. And so that would be the one thing, um, cause presumably if you went into a daycare and you were more of a positive parent or this particular type of parent, like, and you found it, that was so opposite. You'd probably not keep your kid there. I would hope if you had the option, I don't right. know. Um, when it comes to other adults, I think, especially like grandparents, um, <laughs> sib- like your siblings, like your aunts and uncles. Yeah. It is a tricky place to walk because honestly, I think that parenting is one of the, unfortunately the most, um, 
what is the word I'm looking for? Like dichotomizing among family members. Right. So like I've had my own like lovely mother seeing how Ryan and I parent our kids and be like, what did I do so wrong that you're doing it so different? And I'm like, no, no, no. Like it wasn't that at all. Right. And so sometimes people take it very, very personally when you choose to parent differently and they see it as a judgment on them. So I would be very carefully personally around like, you know, like kind of perpetuating or like proselytizing your parenting strategies. I don't think people take, will take that very kindly in like play group and stuff. Um, you know, but, um, but I think that depending on where your own boundaries are as a parent, right? Like there's just certain things I won't ever tolerate my children to experience from another adult. And there will be problems if they do like, right. Like, and, and that's any kind of like, you know, hitting or, you know, like any kind of really harsh word. We don't use any, sh- we, we try very hard. We are not perfect, but we try very hard to not use any kind of like shame-based parenting or criticism or anything yeah. like that. Um, and so I'm, I'm definitely, and my kids are still young, right? They're four. So like, this is if we're in the setting of a family member or somebody else and, and I'm, I'm totally appropriate and comfortable standing up for my child and be like, yeah, nope, sorry, her body, her choice. Right. Like that sort of kind yes. of situation. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question because I'm kind of throwing a lot of examples at you, but I think it really depends on the relationship, right? I think it depends on how solid you feel as well. I'm a really confident, assertive person. I don't have a lot of problems (laughs) asserting my parenting philosophy is if I need to, you know, in family settings, I don't, but sometimes that's harder for others, right? Who are not so assured in what they feel. So I think it's like, you know, being aware of, um, of, you know, the different types of dynamics that might exist in opportunity in situations that your child is in. If you have the choice to, to not have your child in that situation, and that's reasonable for you and you can take them out and that seems easier to you. Or if you do feel assertive enough to kind of address it and ask for a slightly different approach from the other adult, I think that it depends on your own personality and your situation. So, so in that vein, tell me what it, what is positive parenting? I feel like after, you know, listening to your podcast and reading some of um, your materials, I feel like I am a positive parent to some extent. Um, but I would love for you to kind of just outline, you know, your definition of what it is and kind of like, what are the ground rules for being a positive parent? Yeah. So good question. I don't know if I would say I have like a specific definition that I follow. Um, but in my opinion, positive parenting is like kind of I referenced, like there's not a lot of power struggling. Like there is, <laughs> I have toddlers. Let's not kid. There is some power. <laughs> not a, like, I guess I see it as I, there's less of a parent um, kind of enforcing a, a schedule, a, you know, dictating what a child does when and why and where and how, and right. There's just a lot more freedom. It also goes with like, we are also kind of um, in the vein of unschooling our children, which I have renamed fun schooling because I believe that education and learning should be fun for a child. Right. And so it's the same kind of philosophies. It's like trying to be child led, trying to be, um, you know, using assertive discipline, discipline being education based instead of punishment and punitive and shame based. Unfortunately, I think a lot of us were raised and our parents for sure were raised with a lot of shaming. There was a lot of emotion shaming. Right. And so by nature, by, or by uh, product of that, we have learned to suppress all our emotions and now here we are. Right. And so we're all unlearning that now, which is great. Great. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a shift away from those kind of like um, almost dictatorial or autocratic parenting styles, right? It's not permissive. I think that's one of the biggest um, kind of criticisms of positive parenting is like, your kids have no boundaries. And I will tell you, like, my kids have boundaries, right? Boundaries are actually loving part of positive parenting because boundaries help children feel safe, right? So you can absolutely still have boundaries and you can just have, you know, um, 
structures in place to help your children understand, you know, how the day flows or how we act and how we don't act, but there's just less focus on that behavior is wrong or you're wrong, yes. right? Like there's just less of the, um, of a negative framework. I'm poorly describing positive parenting, but to me, it's kind of like a very natural evolution of how I already work with adults as well. It's like yeah. a very emotion focused, emotion positive environment where emotions are welcome, right? Sometimes the yeah. behaviors that follow from emotions are not welcome, but then we address the behavior, not the emotion or the child. Right. right? It sounds like you're saying, you know, that the relationship between a parent and a child is a conversation. It's a constant evolving conversation about how to navigate the world around them. Exactly. Explaining, explaining why a situation is dangerous and what the outcome could be if you don't follow the rules surrounding that -hmm. outcome. Um, Mm -hmm. or like you said before, validating an emotion and saying, it's okay to feel this emotion. It's not wrong. You're not wrong or bad for feeling that emotion, but let us figure out a positive and constructive way to channel that emotion. Um, Let us figure out a way to bounce back from challenges that you feel like maybe you can't overcome, or maybe you feel like you won't overcome. And so conversing and kind of explaining, I always hate when, you know, when anyone would ever say to me, well, because I said, so like, you can't do that because I said, so like, you know, there's a reason you can't do that. And if you understand the reason, chances are, you're going to not do it again. It's understanding. I think like, as you were, I was like, I kind of realized like what it comes to me is, is that it's really at the base of it, understanding that our children come like as fully respectable individuals at yeah. birth. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they have their own motives. They have their own goals. They have their own dreams. And just because I'm the parent doesn't mean I overpower those. Like at times, of course, I will have to overpower you for safety reasons or for like, sure. you know, certain things, but, but it's not like, you know, this rigid parent down strategy, right? Okay. It's more like a, um, you know, a collaborative ongoing, like you said, continual conversation and relationship that's led more from like a direction of like caring and, and unconditional love and acceptance. Right. Yeah. And when you learn about how the nervous system develops and like the early ways that children learn to emotionally regulate, you learn that some of the most vital things are like having a safe and unconditionally accepting caregiver right? That's one of the earliest ways that response to your, you know, and that's attachment parenting, basically or attachment theory, but, you know, like having a responsive, caring adult that cares for you, you learn the world is a safe place. And then you slowly evolve and you learn to co-regulate with that adult. And all of these things are ongoing until our children. I mean, I think even into young adulthood, right? This is going on because as they get older, they have more struggles. They need to look to their parents of how do I figure this out? Right. And so it's, it's, it's all based around, I, believe building beautiful humans rather than raising kids. Do you know what I mean? I often say that I'm like, if you were to parent your child and think of them as you are raising an adult, how would you talk to them in this way? Right. Would you sound a little jerk? Like, would you be a jerk? Like, no, you would treat them with respect, right? You would be like, okay, so you could make that choice. You could, that would be your choice to make, but you might be cold if you choose to wear a coat, not wear a coat. And if I don't want to wear a coat, I'm like, okay, then positive parenting is not then turning around when your kid is cold and being like, I told you you're going to be cold. Like you should have made it right. It's not like that. It's like, so my kid might not bring a coat. So, but I'm tucking one in my backpack because I'm the adult here. Right. And when they come and they say, mommy, I want my coat. We're like, okay, great. Here's your coat. I brought it anyways. That's right. To me, like, I feel like it's those little day-to-day experiences where it's not like a shame based. You should have known better. Right. 
right? They're kids. Like they, that's how they learn. They go outside, they get cold. They realize they need a coat, right? It's like natural consequences is a big part of positive parenting. My mother, um, she used to love the, the Khalil Gibran poem on parenting. And she would talk about how your children, our children are not ours. They are, they belong to the world. And, you know, she used to describe parenting, um, like her job, uh, as a parent to us was not to make us into who she wanted us to be. Exactly. It, her job as a parent was to support us in a loving way as we become who we are going to become exactly of our, of our own volition, of our own interests, of our own, you know, passions and, um, the, the, our own experiences and how they shape who we'll become. It's not our job as parents to make them into an adult who does what we want them to do or who shares the same interests as us, which is hard for a lot of adults. You know, I was a dancer. You, you have this idea when you have a daughter that your my daughter's going to be a dancer too. And when my daughter decided she didn't want to dance and she wanted to play lacrosse, I was like, Oh, but you're such a beautiful dancer, you know, but she's not, <laughs> she's not mine to make into what I want. It's yeah. my job to watch her and support her as she flourishes in her own interests. And mm-hmm. that was, that's, I think that's a hard thing for parents to do sometimes, but it's such a beautiful way of looking at it. These are our gifts to the world. These are our gifts to the future. And they're going to take that, you know, hopefully the best of us and the best of the people around them and the best of the, all the experiences and the influences that they have in their lives and make that into something um, supremely individual and unique and, and yeah. magnificent. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I, I often remind my kids all the time, actually, <laughs> all the time. Like I'm just learning to do this too. Right. Yeah. You're learning how to be a, a, like an adult, a human. <laughs> like, I'm learning how to teach you to be a human. Yes. So we're going to just learn together and we're all going to make mistakes, but we can make mistakes and love each other anyways. And we can get mad at each other and still be safe. And we can be mad at each other. So love each other. Right. These are like some simple phrases and, and basically like our principles of our household that we often share, yeah. but it's true. Like, and parents are so hard on themselves. Like, yeah. like I should have known this. I should right. know better. I'm like, really? Like when's like, is this your first time being this age parenting this type of age child? Oh, it is. Okay. Yes. No. Yeah. So you're brand new at this is what you're telling me. <laughs> right? but, no, but also, yeah. but also you, you mentioned several times already in this conversation that it depends on the, on the individual. It depends on the individual yeah. situation. And one of the things that I have learned in parenting three kids, I'm not done by any stretch of the imagination, but each child needs something different at different That's stages. Right. And what worked with one doesn't necessarily work with the others. And so, you know, kind of being, um, not only, as you said, beautifully vulnerable and and just sharing with your children that I don't always know the right answer, but that I'm going to help us figure it out, you know, and that what worked for my oldest might not work for my middle child because of personality differences or, you know, whatever, whatever the reason, um, just being, being flexible, allowing yourself to be vulnerable in front of your children so that they, they can see, and learn from you how to be resilient and how to address challenges and how to, you know, kind of change your course if you need to, and not be so rigid. And, um, I think that's a beautiful gift to give them. And I think it's a really flexible and healthy way to approach parenting and also not saying like, well, your sister did it this way, or, you know, your brother did it that way, or this is, you know, worked for her in kind of bringing in that shame component. So, I mean, I, I love, I love the approach. I think it's so, um, I think it's, it's such an, it's such a, for me, it appears to be an ideal way to parent 
whether I can implement it fully and perfectly and, <laughs> you know, yeah. all the time, um, you know, definitely something that uh, I could see finding challenges for my own personality, the way my, our household runs. And so I just think it's interesting. Tell me about some tips or strategies that you uh, suggest for helping children regulate their emotions other than watching us and learning from us as their models about how to Mm -hmm. regulate our emotions. What is a good way to help a child who is struggling with an emotion that they can't handle learn Mm -hmm. how to, how to convert that situation from a negative into a positive. Okay. So I speak from my four-year-old experience, like, cause that's what I have, right. I'm thinking of little people, but I suspect that this will work for up the ages as well. Um, like you said, it starts with obviously us learning to regulate ourselves and modeling it. Second is a lot of emotional language, right? So a lot of children don't have a lot of emotional language. And so really helping a child um, notice what's happening in their body. Oh, your face, like it's all scrunched up. Are you, are you feeling mad? You look like you might be feeling mad or your fists are really tight. It looks like you might be feeling angry, right? Because children like um, an emotion, right? Is just a bunch of physiological sensations going through the body. They don't know its name. They don't know necessarily what it is. So without telling them, even, you know, like children who are seven, eight, nine years old, right. Still might struggle with emotional identification, emotional intelligence. And so, so it's a lot of lame, laming, naming, correct me, um, naming of the emotions, right. With, with appropriate emotional language and then asking them like, what's going on with you inside? Where do you feel that? Right. Like, I love that mindfulness approach to emotional understanding. Um, where do you feel that anger in your body? What does it feel like? Is it a tight ball or is it a stabbing pain? Like, what are you feeling there? And I think what we do as parents, unfortunately, in the best interest of our kids is we try to problem solve too much when a child is experiencing an emotion, like way too much. Right. And so kind of like a kind of heralding back to what my earlier conversation of like, when our emotional activation system is online, our smart thinking brain is offline. And that is often the phrase used for that is they flip the lid. Right. So when your child's undergoing like this, like devastating emotional experience, like not the chance or the time to be like talking to them a lot, like saying a lot of complex things or problem solving with them or making them right. Or making them like say exactly what is happening for them or why they're so angry. And this is what we often do. Oh my God, you're so upset. What happened? Oh my God, we can fix it. Don't worry. Here's what we do. What happened Like that's because we go into problem solving. Yes. One of the biggest shifts I've made in my own parenting, and it's a mindset shift is it's like when your child is going through an emotion of any age, like, can you regulate yourself? Cause it's very uncomfortable when your child is screaming her head off, right? Can you regulate yourself in that moment and just be present with them in that emotional space, knowing that all emotions peak and pass, it will pass, right? Holding them. If they're like a physical child or like, like touch, right? Like I'm a big hugger. I often will just get down on my knees and put my arms out. My kids come running to me because that's sorry, how they regulate, um, you know, and, and just being in the moment emotionally with them, maybe using a little bit of that. Like, it looks like you're feeling angry. Wow. You're so angry right now. I see that you're feeling angry right now. Mm-hmm. A lot of just that, you know, anger is okay. We can deal with anger, anger's right. But but then letting the emotion wave actually go down a bit before we start to take the action steps, mm-hmm. right? And I see this often is that, like I said, we try to problem solve because we think if we problem solve, we'll remove the emotion. And then our child gets the message that the emotion is bad. So I can't feel it because I can't survive it because mom's trying to take the problem away. 
So that must mean I can't have this emotion. Right. And so instead we want to say like, okay, we'll get to that problem, whatever it is right now. My focus is you in this emotional experience and giving you some skills. So my kids and I love, and it's, I say my kids and I, because they do it back to me now, Lex. It's like, it's like too much. (laughs) Mommy, mommy, take a deep breath. Oh, Mommy doesn't count with me. Like, so um, one that I do with my one daughter is that we will do counted breaths, right? So in and out on a one and then a two and so on and so forth. She does that on her own now um, when she gets really emotional, right? Um, just taking a deep breath at all, right? Because most of us breath hold and especially kids when they get really angry, yeah, like yeah. she'll just like not, she'll be turning beep and she's a breath holding. I'm like, take a breath, baby. You know, um, some other kind of simple things is to try to flip the lid back on just a bit is to give them something to drink, like an ice cold glass of water, which, um, you know, can help activate our parasympathetic system. Um, lots of physical touch can be good if it's the right child, right? So obviously knowing your child, you know, your child best. If your child would find a hug very noxious and too, like too much, don't hug, right? Maybe don't touch them at all. Maybe just let them have their space. Mm -hmm. So it does take this song and dance of seeing what, how does your child regulate best? And then how you can support them in doing that. But I would say just staying out of problem solving mode, right? Until the emotion comes down. Then when they're back online and the lid is no longer flipped, they're going to be able to actually make these constructive things, right? We often seek to try to like understand why in the moment you're feeling this way, right? And for my kids being four, like sometimes there's literally no no rational reason. And so I'm just like, okay, I'm just going to forget that like, I'm not going to look for the reason at all. I'm just going to see what's happening. I'm going to witness what's happening. I'm going to hold them in this moment. I'm going to show them that I'm going to love them even if they feel this way. Mm. Right. Because that's, I read that and I wish I could remember where I read that, but it was the the biggest concern of a child immediately after having a big emotional meltdown is, will I still be loved when I behave that way? Mm. Right. When I get so angry at you and I'm five and I'm kicking the crap out of you because I'm five years old and that's all I know what to do in my anger. Will you still love me after? Right. And so that's why I'm always like, we don't time out our kids, right? Like I go sit with them and we hug or hold or whatever is comfortable for them. And then after I'm like, Hey, you were feeling really mad. And mommy loves you anyways. Even if you get mad at me, like, I'll love you no matter what, even if you kick me, even if you hit me, right? Like I'm going to love you no matter what. So then the child learns that their emotions are safe in their body because they're loved anyways. And then you can talk about the problem yeah. and how to differ, yeah. how to handle it differently, how to intellectualize in an appropriate way, right. Yeah. In an appropriate way. So depending on what your child is, right. And then asking if I, I do a lot of like, my kids are again four, so it's not really that effective yet, but I look forward to using a lot of like, you know, questioning, like almost a Socratic method of like, yeah. well, what do you think might work better? Instead of being like, you yeah. could do this next time because they're like, I don't want to hear what you have to say, <laughs> you know, right. they don't want to hear what we have to say, but, and truthfully, like the problem solving is often not what our child needs or wants in the moment. It's literally just to be seen and witnessed. I can't tell you right. how many times my kids come running to me screaming they have this big battle. And I just like, you know, validate, oh, that seems really frustrating. And they're like, okay, thanks mom. See ya. And they're like, I didn't solve any problems at all. Yeah. Right. And it's the same in the family practice office. Like how often do you have somebody coming in? They have a whole bunch of problems. You might not solve any of them, but if you've listened and you said like, wow, that sounds like you're going through a lot. They're like, thanks doc. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because we just need to be seen as the emotional beings that we are. We want to know that our emotions are normal and that they're safe and that they're valid and that you might feel that way too at some time. My daughter who's six, she's my youngest. And she said to me recently, you know, sometimes when I'm hurt, you say you're fine, you're fine. And that's like, it's kind of like, I look at it as kind of a, a, a way of reassuring her 
or trying to soothe her. And I was also like, like, you're fine. You're fine. Everything's gonna be fine. And she said to me, she's like, but I'm not fine. She's like, mm-hmm. when I'm, when I'm hurt, I'm hurt and I'm not fine. And that really made me think along the same lines of what you were just saying that maybe in that moment, instead I should validate that she's injured. Absolutely. Let her feel what she feels, whether it's pain or, you know, regret for, you know, kicking something that she shouldn't have kicked um, and not ever getting mad that she was injured, not being upset with her that she got injured because I told you not to do that, you know, kind of thing. It's really hard. Don't judge yourself too much. It's so so hard. You're like, I told you that was a really stupid thing to do. Freaking (laughs) hard. So forget. But you know, she she taught me essentially what you just said. Allow me to feel what I'm going to feel, and then after that has settled down and passed, and we're calm, then we can talk about obviously if they're the right age and have the skills and the intellect to do so. How we could approach that differently. What we'll do. You know, what we should have done instead. Mm -hmm. And go from there. And you know, we do that too as adults. I mean, we you know, I, I always say, my husband always says to me, don't write, don't send the email, write the email, feel what mm-hmm. you're going to feel, write it all out. But, but wait till tomorrow to hit send, wait till your emotions have calmed down and you can intellectualize things and you can really think through what is going to happen if I send this nasty email or what is going, you know, what should, how could I approach this differently now that my intellect is engaged and not just my emotions? So we kind of know how to do that. And yet we expect our kids to be able to, you know, quickly process whatever it is that they're feeling or even deny them the ability to feel what they're feeling or or make them feel bad about it. And so, and I think the one thing that I do want to mention, like we've spoken about, like, wait till the emotion comes down and then solve the problem. Sometimes there's no problem solving actually needed. Like don't undervalue the fact that the emotional experience is the problem solving, right? The emotional Ooh. experience is sometimes the consequence of an Love that, right? So if they hit make a choice and then they feel a terrible emotion, that is the lesson, unfortunately. And you right? don't have to say, oh, don't so you feel bad about right? that? Right. I'm like, like, and, and again, this is so like my one kid, oh my God, she's pure fire. I call it, her name's Faye and I call her fire fairy because she's just pure fire. And like, she will have, you know, she'll do something because she's also very um, outgoing and likes to climb and very adventurous. And yeah, there's been a number of times she gets really hurt or she, you know, whatever um, through no fault of her own. She's just a kid. Um, and if I ever tried to problem solve her, she gets very irritated with me. Right. After her emotions are all set, I'm like, well, was that a good choice? Mommy, I know. Right. Because their emotion has already taught them that maybe that wasn't the best choice. And it can almost seem like, um, condescending sometimes in certain children. If you're kind of like, harping on the problem and could we do it different and really intellectualizing it like trust that their emotions their bodies are teaching them something as well that we don't always have to teach we don't always have to be on we can allow that to happen kind of like the coat in the cold weather sort of situation or maybe we can just ask do you want to talk about what happened do you want to brainstorm ways to deal yeah that's because like how would it feel again as an adult right if you came to me and you were having this big meltdown and I held your emotion it felt great and then after you were like, not interested in talking about it. And I was like, so what would you like to do different? You'd be like, screw off. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. right. And so again, I always say, would I do that to an adult? I probably wouldn't. Right. Unless they were interested. I wouldn't yeah. force like it on them in a way. Yes. No, I, as, yeah. as we're speaking, I'm realizing that my ability to regulate after something, you know, stresses me out. It takes a long time for me to get back to a point where 
I feel like I can move forward in a positive way. And I don't know what the yeah. heck happened. I mean, I got to do some like, you know, um, hypnosis or something because it, 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 it takes abnormally long for me to get back into a positive frame of mind where I can move forward. You know, my husband will be like, okay, it's over. We're done. We're moving on now. Like, right. Hello. You know, and well, like and hours so, later, I'm still like yeah. feeling the emotion. Yeah. Well, and I would question you it, like on what emotion it is and what's abnormally long and yeah. who told you that. Mm. <laughs> oh, 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 I'm going to use that. <laughs> right. Well, this is because, taking too long. Because, <laughs> like, again, humans feel emotions. That's yeah. our job. Like, our emotional experience is life. And, yes. um, and so, you know, like, <laughs> you feel, and, and also, like, that's where some of the more cognitive strategies come in, right? So, like, anger specifically towards a child, um, you know, when they've done something really made you angry. Yeah. Um, often we're, we're doing some sort of cognitive fallacies around like that it was intentional or that they were doing it to spite us. And I hot, like my kids are four and I have to remind myself, like, they're not doing this out of spite. Like they're not actually making the mess because they want me to clean it up. Cause they know I'm tired. Like, no. Right. But yeah. in my brain, when I'm pissed off, yeah. I'm just like, you ungrateful little, right. Like, you know, right. And we're, we're human. So I think it's like, you know, it are, is it abnormally long? Maybe if it wasn't abnormally long, would it be a problem? Right. What if, it, what if you were just allowed to be the emotion that you were right? The emotion, well, the phrase I love is the emotion is not bad. The behavior is that falls from the emotion can be bad. Mm. Right. And I say that with my kids, it's okay to be mad. It's not okay to hit your sister. Mm-hmm. It's okay to be mad. It's not okay to kick the dog. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It's the same. With you. It's okay to be mad. It's not okay to like, you know, be a bear and attack your family, you know, yeah. and be yelling at them. It's okay to be mad and you can be mad for as long as you want. That yeah. is your right. Right. So, so I would ask how long is too long. Right. right? And I think how long is too long is a personal situation, but being very cautious of that tendency towards self-judgment. Right. I write about this actually in my book. I say that on the whole, women tend to assume that any of their emotional experiences are like false overreactions to their life immediately. Well, that's what we've been told forever. Yes. You know, you're too exactly. emotional. You're too quick. You don't get over it yeah. fast enough. Yeah. You don't, you know. Yeah. yeah. And so, so I, I try to turn that on its head and be like, well, again, like, like I said, who told you that? Yeah. And what if they weren't abnormal? What if they were just how you felt? Would it be okay? Right. Yeah. Like Eckhart Tolle says um, something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, but it's like, if you're very sad and you're sad about being sad, you're like making it worse for yourself. But what if you just weren't sad about being sad? <laughs> like, what if you just were sad? experience right. the first emotion. Yeah. Everything, exactly. everything you're Primary saying, emotion. everything you're saying is it, it kind of keeps circling back to the same kind of concept of allow yourself, your partner, your child to go through what they're going to go through. Cause that's their emotion. It's their body. It's their nervous system and it's their experience. And then just being able to validate and then support them in a way that's individualized to them, that's constructive mm-hmm. and positive and may vary from person to person um, is probably the best way that you can support their um, resilience and mm-hmm. emotional regulation. And, and understanding, I, yeah, I love that. And understanding that like your tendency to like, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. Yeah. 
right? That, that comes from your own distress with her pain. Yes. Right. And so it's all, it all comes to, that's why I said like on a whole humans have a very low tolerance for distress. And so we've been, because we haven't learned base, you know, we're working on it. Yay. It's emotional revolution here um, because we're working on learning how to regulate and manage and be mindful and live through our own emotions. Right. We're not going to be perfect at it. And when our kid is shrieking at the top of her lungs or, or you know, and you're like, you're fine, you're fine. That's just a reflex because it, you're seeking to reduce your own distress by reducing her distress. Right. Right. So, so it all comes down to like, how do I manage distress? How do I sit with this right now? And it's simple, right? People get really complicated. Like, how do I sit? How do I do? You like literally just keep breathing. It'll go away. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like keep breathing. Don't do anything. Maybe reorient the brain to something like a mindfulness activity, ground yourself in your body, like pay attention, put your hand on your heart, like do some sort of physically grounding experience and breathe and wait. Does it sound crazy though, that we're talking about, you know, these, these, these mindset techniques and kind of shifts and growth in our mindset in our day-to-day lives and our parenting lives and our interpersonal relationships, when there is something so massive and catastrophic that's surrounding us, like I, like, sometimes I just feel like surviving is enough Mm -hmm. and is hard enough, you know, and navigating the big things that we have to deal with does it translate if you practice these small things Mm -hmm. on an individual, um, situational basis, one thing at a time, does that translate? Does that make us better at processing and accepting and bouncing back from Mm -hmm. this big thing that none of us have ever dealt with before and, and, and want so desperately to move forward from? Mm-hmm. I think that question comes from the idea that like an emotional regulation skills, distress tolerance skills are like, you know, um, like higher level skills because they're newer to us, right? Yes. Like, it's like, yeah, I feed my kids. I Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And then I <laughs> yeah. learn the regulation. Right. But what if we just have it backwards? Right. Have you read the book by Gary Keller? The one thing? No, I, ha- okay. I have the book. I have yeah. the book. So it's, it's like a habits book. It's not really yeah. this, but it reminds me of this. Like what if learning emotional regulation and distress tolerance skills, which is literally like learning the skills and breathing through your, the crap. What if that's the one thing that makes everything way easier? That's the premise of the book. You do the one thing that makes everything else in your life way easier. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you could master the skill of, I can breathe through emotion. I can survive emotion. I can be in this emotion. Doesn't that make everything else way easier? Regardless of scale, whether you Regardless lost your keys or right? you see, have a hundred patients to see in the pandemic. Distress is distress is distress. Yes. There's different scales of distress. Absolutely. Yes. And by no means am I telling you that like practicing with your toddler at home or like about losing your keys, practicing your distress is going to get you through the death of a loved one. Right. No, but nobody's supposed to be able to like, there's no like way you handle it. That's perfect. Right. And I think we all try to, we do try yeah. to like measure up that we're supposed to be like reacting and responding and being appropriate. Again, there goes back to that idea that every emotional reaction is a false reaction to life. It's not, that is life the emotions that you experience. Right. So I think it's like turning that idea on its head from, from thinking of those skills as like really fancy, like higher level, you know, like high achieving skills. Like, no, those are like basic skills, emotional regulation, co-regulation is not even a skill that we like intentionally learn as a child. We learn it. Our brains learn it on its own. When we have that safe caregiver, we learn how to regulate with the caregiver. It's no different. Right. So it's just that we, I think as as our generation 
as parents have lost touch of that ability to regulate ourselves. And so that's why it feels so new. It's like a new age idea to regulate yeah. distress. It's not, it's just that we've had crappy coping mechanisms probably up until now. And now you're all of a sudden aware of this ability that you might have to, to regulate your own emotions, right? Many of us, like you said, use a lot of vices, yeah. right? Feeling really angry. I don't want to feel angry. I have a drink glass of wine. Oh, I'm better. Perfect. Sure. Right? What, um, what has been mentioned to me and taught to me from several other physicians in this podcast and probably applies kind of as an answer to the question that I just posed is, does the primitive brain, does, does the, the, the nervous system know the difference between stubbing your toe and, you know, being critically ill? Does, does, the, does your body understand the difference between a minor day-to-day stressor or something that's a crisis? Your, your, your nervous system is activated in fight or flight. I feel in the same way, regardless of the scale of the injury or mm-hmm. situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the degree to which the response is perpetuated depends on the situation, right? So like we have, you know, the parts of our brain that regulate our stress response in really simple terms. I'm going to grossly oversimplify this, yeah. right? Is the limbic system, the amygdala, and then the cortex, the smart thinking brain. And of course, like when we are experiencing threat, most of the threat stuff goes through the amygdala first and generates the threat response, but we can downregulate that with our cortex if we're, you know, like alert and can see, you know, that it's like a mailbox on the side of the road versus a deer, right? So, yes. so like to answer that case, like, yeah, like our nervous system responds the same way, but the, the reaction is not perpetuated as much in those simple day-to-day experiences. Whereas in like this catastrophic, critically ill sort of situation, or, you know, yeah. like your loved one is in the hospital, like that, your, your stress response is going to be continually perpetuated in the same, like, because it's a constant stressor. Does that yeah. follow? Yeah. And um, when something like the deer on the side of the road, you know, your immune system is activated and then you rationalize that this is no longer a threat. And then that your body can kind of move away yeah. from that. Exactly. And your nervous system has the ability to downregulate your fight or flight response when it's something that's constant and chronic and there's continued uncertainty and continued fear, that capacity maybe is more protracted or is um, long, you know, longer, more difficult to, 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 to regulate. Oh, so much good stuff here. I have loved, (laughs) I have loved, (laughs) loved, loved, loved. I knew I would love talking to you. Um, I have so much more to learn from you. I'm so excited to listen to your podcast and to read your book. And while I am already know who you are and where I can find you, I would love for you to tell my friends who are listening. And I know who are so grateful for your expertise and your input. I would love for you to tell them where we can find you, um, your books, your courses, um, or how we can contact you if we would like to be one of your patients. Sure. Yeah. So um, my website is really easy. It's just carlycrew.com. Um, C-R-E-W-E, like the crew of a ship with an E on the end. Um, and then on Instagram is kind of my primary platform. So it's at Carly Crew. Um, in terms of offerings, I have a lot of them. So like the easiest place to start is probably the podcast, something free. It's called Mind Over Motherhood. Um, lots of different things. I just started season three and the podcast goes through evolution every season, just like we do. Um, and so now I'm doing, you know, introducing some like different kind of recorded meditations that I'm doing on the podcast mm-hmm. and then mixing it in with guests. And we're going to have you on the podcast, which will be super fun. Um, and, and so that's a really great place to start. Uh, I mentioned my book. It's main, It's called You Are Not Your Anxiety. And so it's my, what I call it is like my no bullshit manual to getting your anxiety under control. And so it's a lot of mindset. It's a lot of understanding where anxiety comes from, how to think about it in a different way and how to live with it um, 
you know, long-term and manage it on an ongoing basis. So that's called, you are not your anxiety. It's available on my website as well as on Amazon. And I think like target and like it's something like 30,000 retailers worldwide online. Um, and then in terms of other offerings, so yeah, my virtual mental health clinic is called Unoya Medical. Unoya means well mind. Um, and that's available to, um, Canadian listeners, but I also do have a monthly mental health membership program called the Unoya Collective that's open worldwide. Um, it's, there's like two levels. It's very flexible, but what I love about that is it's a community. So what we haven't touched on yet is the, the like incredible importance of um, community and social connection for mental well-being. And so I wasn't being able to provide that myself as a solitary human being, but I could create a beautiful space. And so I did that. And we just have like this incredible community of forward thinking women who want to work on their mental health. I find that in the mental health space online, it can be like a bit of a minefield if you're going into Facebook groups and sometimes they're eh, a little freaky. No, this community is really positive, really forward focused called Unite Collective. Um, opens twice a year. Next one is going to be February, 2022. So there's a waiting list. You can jump on it. Super fun. Um, and then what else? So then over the next year, I'm going to actually be releasing a course every single month, um, all on high yield topics in women's mental health. So I have one on anxiety, perfectionism, distress tolerance, and emotional regulation, um, eating for your brain, uh, which is a big topic. I talk about like, um, nutritional psychiatry is one of my passions as well. So eating for brain health, movement for mood. Um, what else is there? Assertiveness boundaries, like just a whole swack of things that I find are really relevant. It's the stuff that I'm constantly telling all my clients. Right. Um, and so I thought morning women need to have those and those will be available pretty soon here. I think our first one's going to be coming out in the next couple months and it's all about self-care so those will be on my website as well so it's a whole lot of things but basically if you want to connect I'd love to hear from anybody if you have questions about the episode I would love to hear from you um social media Instagram is probably the best place I will link all of your contact information and where my friends can find you uh, virtually and on social media and I you're you're just an inspiration and uh, I so appreciate that you have been have identified the need for women's mental health awareness access to women's mental health and that you are actively out there promoting it, cultivating resources for women to not only identify their emotions and regulate their emotions, um, but where we can feel free to go through what we're going through without judgment and um, where we can get help. Because I think that there's not a lot of people who acknowledge that we need help. Um, or have a difficult time acknowledging that we need help or feel a lot of shame around the fact that our mental health is, um, is suffering. And so I just really appreciate that you have, have dove, dove, that you dived, that you dived, (laughs) dove into this space and that you are out there on behalf of women, Canadian and all over the world. So thank you so much. Thank you for talking with me and spending time away from your family and your RV. Um, we have so much more to talk about, so I will see you soon. Yes, absolutely. I'm excited. Thank you. Thanks Dr. Crew. Take care. Bye. Take care. Hey, thanks for listening to my podcast, Family Health with Dr. Lex. If you love the music like I do, you can find more at therealmichaelvm.com forward slash music. If you'd like to support the show, please leave a review, subscribe, and share with your friends. You can ask questions, suggest topics for future podcast interviews, and find more health and wellness information on my website, drlexlifestylemedicine.com. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh.